0: Theology of the Body Institute, this is...
1: The Ask Christopher West Podcast.
0: Hi, podcast listeners. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Ask Christopher West podcast hosted by Wendy West.
1: Here I am. Wendy West. I said it already. You said it already. I did. So you listeners have heard us talk about how Christopher likes to watch documentaries. And a lot of times he watches documentaries when I'm not around. But last night um, he was about to watch one and said, do you want to watch this with me? And I thought I might just like say, you know, just go to sleep. But this was gripping.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the title of this, this is what Got me. Yeah. The title of this documentary, and it came up in my YouTube feed because I've watched various things about airplanes because I do a lot of flying and I have an interest in aviation. Uh, and it says, "This is the title of the documentary: The Captain That Got Stuck Outside of the Plane." Oh my goodness. Ugh. Yeah. Oh. Now this this he got stuck outside the plane, not on the ground. No. He got sucked out the windshield. The windshield broke off oh. mid-flight in a pressurized cabin. And because all of the release of the pressure on the inside of the plane sucked him out the the windshield. And then his feet got pinned to the controls of the plane, yeah. which put the plane into a nosedive. And the co-pilot couldn't. Adjust the the trajectory of the plane because the captain's feet are pinned, have pinned the controls totally forward.
1: Such a an
0: amazingly so these crazy situation. Flight attendants had to hold this guy's legs back, uh, unpin his feet from the controls, with four hundred mile an hour winds coming through the cockpit, and maybe we shouldn't give away more than that. It's it is a little. It is a gripping documentary.
1: Yeah, safe landing, safe, amazingly. Yes, yeah, safe landing.
0: Yeah, the, there are eighty-seven the people on the on the on the flight.
1: Yeah, the co-pilot was an absolute amazing hero. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, this happened in the early nineteen nineties, and I don't know if you're into documentaries. We will have the link for you in the show notes if you're into <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> If you're not has, into that kind of thing, don't watch it. It nothing to
1: do really with TOB. I mean, we can always find
0: some TOB connection, but yeah, it we, just totally we interested us. We do you want, <laughs> shall we do that? Shall we just dedicate this episode no, to no, 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 no. TOB connections with bodies getting sucked out airplanes? Oh, gosh. It's like a birth. <laughs> it's not a
1: funny story. It was captivating, though. That's for sure.
0: Sure was. <laughs> yeah. So, if, do you... if you are having trouble giving birth, <laughs> Go into a wind tunnel where they increase the pressure and then ha- maybe the... No. That's stupid. But anyway, that, I just thought we'd share a little bit of uh, an experience we had last night. There you we go. Sure there did. you have it. Moving right along. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why this is making you laugh so much. I don't know either. Do you Wendy, have any Wendy, updates? It, was tra- it was tragic. You should be... You should,
1: it was amazing it was amazing um give us an amazing update on the TOB institute amazing update on the TOB
0: institute well for our faithful listeners you already know this but we are going to france it's wendy and i this is like an official ask christopher west podcast and we hope and pray that nobody gets sucked out the airplane <laughs> that's on what on. I'm laughing. About. I knew you were laughing about that. That's why we I had, just talked about. So I had to bring it up.
1: Tragic flight. Now we're saying, "Hey, come on, <laughs> get on an airplane, fly to
0: Europe, come to France." <laughs> we are. We are going to. Once we get off the airplane safely, we'll be getting on a cruise ship on the River Seine. Seine. Seine, mm-hmm. Seine. Yeah. Se, the Seine River. I always want to say Seine or Seine. Um. We're getting on the Seine River and we are going to be studying the works of Therese, the little flower, and making connections with John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And I can't wait because Wendy, you're coming with me. And this is the first pilgrimage you and I have led together. We're also starting in Lourdes, if people want to do a little add-on at the start of the pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. And the cabins are filling up on the boat. So if you are, if you've been hearing us talk about this weeks now, and you're like, should I go? Should I not go? Maybe now's the time to say yes. We're gonna, we're gonna go. So, if you want to learn more, check out the link in mm-hmm. the show notes. Yeah, we're looking forward to it very much. So,
1: I have a question for you. Okay, this is from a, an an anonymous patron. I was reading scripture and came across Moses meeting God face to face, and I was struck. I usually thought of this on a metaphorical basis, but I realized that it might go deeper than that because of how much the Jewish people reverence this relationship. How is it that God met Moses face to face before the incarnation? And how do we understand Jesus's existence before the incarnation? It's rather confusing to me that Jesus did not merely take on flesh, but was fully human, fully divine. What was he before he was conceived in Mary's womb? And how does the nature of Jesus change through the incarnation without changing the fact that God is unchanging? If you could open up the mystery for me, I would be deeply grateful.
0: I can try, and it is just that, a a mystery. Um, let me start with the burning bush, and then Wendy, I may need you to repeat the second part where she talks about, uh, she asks, did the nature of Jesus change? Because I want to address that, that's important theologically. Uh-huh. So let's talk about the face-to-face vision that Moses had, and I'm going to turn to the image that Scripture uses, the burning bush, right? This burning bush is fascinating biblical image, and I would be of the mind that there really was a bush that was burning but was not consumed. I don't think that's just some figure or symbol uh, in the sense that the biblical author put it in there, but it didn't really happen. No, I think that really happened, but it was, in its happening itself, a symbol of the Incarnation. Many, many of the Fathers of the Church speak of the bush that is burning and not consumed as fulfilled when Jesus is conceived in the womb of Mary. In fact, the Catechism says that Mary is the burning bush of the definitive theophany. One of my favorite expressions in the Catechism— Mary is the burning bush of the definitive theophany. Theophany is a word more popular in Eastern Christian theology, the churches of the East, uh, and theophany comes from the Greek theos finine. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but it means to reveal or to show God, theophany, right? And we have theophanies pretty regularly, whether we would use that word or not. Like, whenever you see a gorgeous sunset and your jaw drops, that's a theophany. Uh, Whenever you see a beautiful starlit night and you're just in awe at the grandeur of God and His creation, that's a theophany. The ultimate theophany, the ultimate showing of God, is the incarnation. The burning bush is a showing of God right? It's a, it's a revelation in the created order of a divine mystery. So in that sense, it's a showing of God, it's a theophany, and, you know, the, the Scripture says Moses beheld God face to face. Did he behold Him face to face in the sense—I well, mean, in what sense, we need to ask? How did he behold Him face to face? How can you hold, behold God face to face if He doesn't have a face? Well, this is the mystery. God took on a face in the Incarnation. So again, fathers of the Church spoke of the burning bush as a foreshadowing of the Incarnation. Here's one of my favorite quotes from John Paul II on the Incarnation. He says, Jesus Christ is the human face of God and the divine face of man. Mm -hmm. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it because what we have in the incarnation is the marriage of divinity and humanity. And here's we get in here's where we get into the theological question. Can you read it again about the nature of Christ where she says, "Can you shine a light on this for me?" Sure. It's a few lines up where mm-hmm. she says something about, mm-hmm. "Did this change the nature of Christ?"
1: Right. How do we understand Jesus's existence before the incarnation? Okay, let
0: me pause right there. Hold it right there, Wendy. Okay. How do we understand Jesus before the Incarnation? He is the second person of the Trinity eternally generated by the Father. For all eternity, the Father is generating the Son, not in a sexual way, because God is not physical or sexual, but in a purely spiritual and purely divine way, God the Father is eternally generating the Son. Yesterday, today, and forever, now and forever. uh, Glory be to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. This is what we're saying. God is always Trinity. There was never a time when Jesus was not, right? There is a time, if you're thinking of time chronologically, and we'll get to that, there is, in chronological time, there was a time where Christ had not taken flesh, right? Eternally, the Son is generated by the Father to share in the love of the Holy Spirit. And then there's this remarkable expression in Scripture, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, the very One who was eternally generated by the Father, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son born of a woman, See, here's here's the glory—this is where I get really, really excited about this stuff But we wouldn't even know that God is a trinity of persons if it weren't for the temporal generation of the Son in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So what is happening here? What is happening at the moment of the Incarnation, at the moment Christ is conceived in the womb of Mary, what is happening— is that the eternal generation of the Son is now crossing the abyss between heaven and earth, between eternity and time, and the eternal generation is now being manifested in the temporal generation. God's eternal life-giving potency as Father is now entering time. How will this happen, Mary says? I I know not man. And here we can think of those biblical words, Adam knew his wife and she conceived, right? So Mary's very familiar with that scripture from Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and she says, how will this happen? I know not man. And I can hear hear echoes of the prophet Hosea, where the prophet Hosea speaking for the Lord says, I will betroth you to me forever in fidelity, and you will know the Lord, right? That prophecy is fulfilled in Mary. You will know the Lord. Mary opens her fertile womb, not to the temporal, mortal seed of an earthly husband. Mary opens her fertile womb. To the eternal, immortal, spiritual seed of God the Father. Hello, hello, hello. Virginity, Mary's virginity is not a negation of human sexuality, Mary's virginity is the super abundant fulfillment of the entire purpose and meaning of human sexuality. What is the entire purpose and meaning of human sexuality? St. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, when he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, This is a great mystery. This is a mega mysterion in Greek. Love the ring of that. Mega mystery. This is a mega mystery. What is? Our creation is male and female, and the call of the two to become one flesh. This is a mega mystery, and right from the beginning, it was a foreshadowing of the Incarnation and the Eucharist. It was a foreshadowing that God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, would take flesh and give that flesh up for His bride so that we, the Bride of Christ, might become One flesh with him, and this happens precisely in the Eucharist. So, did the nature of the second person of the Trinity change with the incarnation? How's that possible? Because the nature of God doesn't change. Ah, we come to the very precise formulation of the church in her theological language, and it speaks of the hypostatic union which means the union of two natures in the person of Jesus Christ. The person is a divine person. Always was, always will be a divine person. Little Catholic trivia for you. If somebody says, true or false, Christ was a human person, Wendy, what's the answer? No, false. False, false. (laughs) He was not a human person. He was a divine person with a divine nature, and the divine nature was wed to the human nature of Christ. I remember learning this in graduate school, and I remember somebody in class, it was one of my fellow students who was brighter than I, remember the Miller twins? Oh, for sure. So Miller twins, if you're out there, I remember this. Um, One of the Miller twins and I were having a conversation, and and she's she said something like Jesus was not a human person i said yeah he was he was fully incarnate he became one of us he was of course he was a human person she said no uh, you know do your theology like look that look this up he's a divine person and his divine nature was wed to human nature without confusion right there's a marriage here mm. the, mar- the the ultimate marriage the ultimate nuptials Take place within Mary's womb, right? St. Augustine described Mary's womb as the bridal chamber where the marriage between heaven and earth is consummated, because in his very person, his divine person, there is a marriage of two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, right? So the divine nature did not change. The divine nature was wed to human nature. So the Church, right, debated these things throughout the early centuries and came to this formulation after much blood, sweat, and tears, and blood literally—people shed their blood over these uh, things—to help us understand the nature of the Incarnation, and the nature of the Incarnation is the marriage of two natures, divine and human, in the one person— of Jesus Christ, hmm. have I? Have I? I I think you did an awesome job because here's the
1: thing, my love. Yes. Somebody could explain all that in such a boring way. I love hearing your voice and how it excites oh, I get excited. you.
0: Excited! I get so excited because <laughs> this is what theology of the body is, mm. Wendy. This is what your body and my body proclaims when we become one body. We are proclaiming sacramentally, declaring to the whole universe, whenever we become one flesh, we are declaring to the furthest star in the cosmos that the creator of that furthest star in the cosmos entered his creation. That's what the union of man and woman proclaims. This is a mega mystery, and it refers to Christ. It refers to the incarnate Christ, and it refers to his marriage to the church. It refers to what happened in Mary's womb, and it refers to what happens at the altar every time we go to Mass. And I'll I'll add this too. Scripture uses some interesting expressions like the fullness of time. This happened in the fullness of time. And it says weird things like uh, in the book of Revelation, it says, He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What? What? So, this is a picture of time that is not chronological time. It's not chronos, it's kairos. And the the idea of kairos time is is not linear, right? The idea of kairos time is something akin to what John Paul II said in the very first line of his very first encyclical. Jesus Christ— the incarnate Christ, right, is the center of the universe and of history. Cairo's time, we might say, starts from the center point, which is what happened in Mary's womb. What happened in Mary's womb—glory, Ma- glory, glory, glory. The earth is full of His glory, right? This is what happened when Mary opened to the eternal immortal seed of God when the when the infinite potency the life-giving power of God the Father crossed the abyss between heaven and earth and entered the womb of the virgin Mary what happened was the universe had its foundation the fullness of time kairos time the center of the universe and of history is Mary's womb it's the incarnation and in in this in this biblical sense of time, it it goes out in both directions from there. We cannot understand what happened before, and we cannot understand what happened after without understanding the incarnation. It's the center of the universe and of history, and every time husband and wife become one flesh, they are meant to be participating sacramentally in that declaration of the fullness of time and what happened in the womb of Mary. This is the glory of being male and female, made in the image and likeness of God. That's why I get excited about it. And anybody who presents this stuff in a boring way, uh, you need to have a little injection of some joy and enthusiasm, because (laughs) this is not boring stuff. This is life-changing, glorious stuff.
1: I love how our questioner kind of got down this path by reading about Moses in the Old yeah. Testament and just got thinking and how in the end, as you're talking about time, you're affirming that sense of everything is pointing somehow to Jesus. Yes, yes. Um, so I think that's super powerful.
0: Yeah, burning bush. Remember, burning bush is fulfilled in, in Mary. She is the the burning bush of the definitive theophany. Hallelujah! You share in that glory, Wendy. I share in that glory, Wendy. It's true. Thank you. Yes, praise God. Are you ready for another question? I don't know. know. That's like one of the best questions we've ever got. (laughs) Sure, let's do it. Another question.
1: Our next question is from an anonymous listener who says, Hi, Christopher and Wendy. I have a question regarding NFP. I'm a college student who's soon to be engaged to my boyfriend of almost three years.
0: Of how many years? Three. Three. Congratulations. That's awesome.
1: We've both felt God's tugging at our hearts more recently that an engagement is just around the corner within the next year. Something I've been praying is that God would prepare both our hearts for marriage and that he would bring up any questions or conversations we need to have before marriage. Recently, some really deep fear I have about NFP came up. I can't Pinpoint where the fear comes from. Maybe it's my perfectionism and desire for control. I fear messing it up. I have this thought sometimes that it would be easier just to use contraception. But that would defeat the purpose of waiting all this time for marriage. I did grow up in a household where birth control was promoted and openly talked about. Maybe my feelings come from a longing to prove to my mother that you can have a healthy marriage and a manageable amount of children without contraception. Another fear I have about NFP is, what if my infertile window is very small? What happens then?
0: Bless you, bless you. So honest, so human, so raw, just putting it out there. Real stuff, real questions, real-time experiences. I'm honored that you're putting this out to us, and I, I hope Wendy and I can give you some food for thought. And I want to point you to my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. Uh, The whole chapter, chapter six, is devoted to the question of contraception versus natural family planning. I think you'll find that very helpful and illuminating. I'll also point you to our YouTube channel, where I did a whole series, like over a hundred videos on the book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, where I went through the book and Elaborated on my answers there, so uh, just go to our YouTube channel, type in Christopher West, contraception, natural family planning. Lots of videos will pop up. I think that'll take even deeper than what we can do right here on the podcast in this format. But here's some some food for thought. Number one, I'm I'm struck by your really evident self knowledge, like you are aware of the movements of your heart fear, concern, um, am I trying to prove something to my mother? All of that comes from the Holy Spirit shining a light on what's going on in your heart. And not a lot of people have that, so I just want to commend you. You are in tune with what the Holy Spirit is showing you is going on in your heart, and that is critical— for growing in the interior life. It is part and parcel of of real prayer, of real interior journeying, purifying, uh, and growing in intimacy with Jesus. So you're, you're on that path. It's very evident to me. You said this, and this struck me, I sometimes—can uh, you go back to that line, Wendy? I sometimes think that using contraception would just be easier. Is, is that how she puts it?
1: Yeah, I've thought sometimes that it would be easier to just use contraception.
0: Well, guess what? It would be. Absolutely. (laughs) It is easier to use contraception. It's a heck of a lot easier to use contraception, but that doesn't mean it's good, right? Uh, A lot of times, you know, we can put this in the reverse. Uh, People will say, oh, come on, there's no difference between contraception and natural family planning. And one way to respond to that is, well, okay, if there's no difference, then just use natural family planning. And people are like, well, whoa, we whoa, whoa, whoa. we know right away that natural family planning is going to take communication, dedication, sacrifice uh, in in ways that practicing contraception will not. But here's the thing, love, genuine love— is not afraid of communication. It's not afraid of sacrifice. It's not afraid of self-denial. Love, genuine love, in fact, demands all of these things. This is why I tell couples, this has been standard advice I've given couples for, for nearly 30 years of doing this work. I will say even if you do not have a serious reason to be practicing natural family planning in order to avoid a pregnancy, I will still say you should be working into your rhythm of married life regular times of abstinence. Why? Because if you cannot say no to your urge to merge— your yes means nothing. If you can't say no then to your desire for sexual intercourse, then sexual intercourse is just an opportunity to indulge a desire you, you can't control, and the other person then becomes an outlet for your own gratification. This is not marital love, right? Practicing times of abstinence is a school of self-mastery, and self-mastery is an absolute prerequisite for authentic marital love. So, natural family planning, we shouldn't be afraid. What we're afraid of here is not so much the practice of natural family planning. What we're really afraid of, I think if we're honest, is we are afraid of the demands of love. And if you dear sister, are afraid of the demands of love, then you are looking at them squarely and honestly. What do you commit to at the altar? And by the way, what's an altar? It's an altar of sacrifice. We exchange wedding vows in front of an altar of sacrifice under a crucified bridegroom and a bride, the church, who also had a sword thrust through her heart, right? That prophecy of Simeon regarding Mary, and Mary is the symbol of the church, right? And we commit there at that altar of sacrifice, under the marriage bed of the crucified bridegroom and bride, we commit to love as Jesus loves. If that is not, at some level, very uh, threatening, very concerning, doesn't raise some kind of fear. I mean, Jesus, when he was faced with what he was called to, to be faithful to the demands of love, he sweat blood, right? If you're sweating blood in the face of what authentic marital love is calling you to, it's not an exaggeration. You are facing the honest truth of the matter. Wendy, you and I, we have been we're in our 28th year of marriage. We have experienced the good times, the bad, the sickness, the health, the richer, the poorer. We have experienced times of great joy. We have experienced times of great sorrow, great struggle. Yeah. We have experienced times of uh, beauty and times of painful ugliness. We have experienced times of brilliant light, and we have experienced times of great, agonizing darkness. And if either one of us had entered into that darkness, or hard times, or struggles, or agonies, and said, wait a minute, I didn't bargain for this, uh, actually we did. That's what we committed to. That's what we signed up for. And I really believe you you are honestly coming to terms with that, and you're coming to terms through it through looking at what natural family planning will demand of you. And another, and I'd say even more directly honest way of saying the same thing is you're looking honestly at what love will demand of you. You asked, what if if I have a short, um, infertile time? Well, uh, what if you do? that will be a cross that will be a struggle that will demand extra sacrifice but love is not afraid of those things love embraces whatever love demands and here's the good news that i want to hold out to you this is so important and john paul ii makes a particularly uh strong puts a particularly strong emphasis on this and everyone who preaches the gospel must, must, must put a strong emphasis right here. It's not only that the gospel demands difficult things of us. In fact, the gospel demands things that are so difficult that we in of our in and of our own strength cannot fulfill them. The good news of the gospel is not that it demands these difficult things of us. The good news of the gospel is that Christ, in his death and resurrection, gives us the power to meet these demands. And here, I this may be a bit of a paraphrase, but I will quote as directly as possible from memory this passage from John Paul II, where he says, Life and love according to the gospel must not be thought of first and foremost as a list of precepts to follow, because what the gospel demands of us is not within man's capabilities. It is a possibility opened up for us exclusively by grace, by the gift of God, who heals and transforms us inwardly in order to meet the demands of the gospel which is to say, in order to meet the demands of loving as Jesus loves. This is the good news. Love has been poured out, divine love has been poured out for us through the Holy Spirit, and we can open to that love, and in receiving that love, we can show that love to one another, whatever the demands of marriage are. And the perfect biblical image of this, the most keen and and beautiful biblical image of this is the new wine that Jesus brought to the marriage at Cana, right? We've all run out of wine. What is wine a symbol of? Divine love poured out for us. What you're trepidatious about here, I think, is you're looking at what the gospel's calling you to, you're looking at what the demands of marriage are calling you to, and you're looking at the fact that I don't have the ability to do that, and you're right again. I'm so. Uh, I want to be so affirming of your self-knowledge. You are so sincere and honest here, and recognizing I can't live that on my own. You're right. You can't. But the new wine has been poured out that will enable you to live it. Drink up. Drink deeply of that new wine, and you will find, just as Saint John says in one of his New Testament letters. The commands of the Lord are not burdensome. That's the good news.
1: I love um, how this couple already is so clearly um, in touch with that grace as you started out your answer talking about the light that the Holy Spirit is shining. I I loved how um, she said that they pray that God would help them to have the conversations they need to have before marriage and just a sign of that prayer being answered in in a partial way I'm sure there are other things and more conversations about this um but just in her recognizing like this fear um which is natural as you're pointing out um That that is also, that's God's grace at work. That's new wine at work in their relationship um, to show her things about her heart. And that, that is part of how the Lord will continue to work in our lives throughout all of our journeys. Gosh, sometimes we don't always know ourselves and, and a fear if we, if we would just stop at face value and say, oh. I'm afraid of that, so I'll do something else, we would be missing out on where the Lord is wanting to meet us in our weakness and give us something that we don't have in ourselves, or or show us where the wounds and the misdirection has happened in our hearts. So as you brought up about um, concerns about really... Um, what your mother thinks of you and your choices, I think is kind of the underlying fear of, of her judgment or thinking you're making poor choices or that if your children are closer together than she thinks is smart, you know, what, what will that, um, what image of your decisions and your faith and your relationship, will she have? And all of that stuff is so good to tune into and to allow the Lord to speak to that. I, I think you, you've you just opened up really in some ways like a, a, a beautiful space to be filled with grace Ooh. in your heart by acknowledging that dynamic. Because at, in some way in our lives, we all have to kind of struggle with these kinds of questions and, you know, realizing that there's something about the way I'm following the Lord that other people are going to judge and criticize, and and He needs to strengthen the armor on our hearts to be able to, you know, be safe in His protection and knowing that when we're walking in His ways, He's He's right by us. He doesn't leave us. He's with us. And so He enables us to face some of those criticisms by that well of of His mercy and grace that you're opening to and just looking at these things. So I think that's really beautiful. And I have experienced those kind of whisper thoughts of, oh, wouldn't it just be easier, you know, mm-hmm. some other way? Um, yeah, sometimes that thought does come to us. And yet... <laughs> it's true (laughs) yes but um it's so so good to realize that what we want is what he wants for us because we trust him because we know his goodness we know his heart
0: and it's okay to wrestle i think that's important for us to realize jesus in the garden said father take this cup away from me Mm -hmm. that's wrestling right but in the end he said not my will your will be done. Keep wrestling, dear sister, and ask for the grace that in the end, you will allow God's will to be done and not take things into your own hands and just follow your own will. Be not afraid.
1: Our next question is from a listener named Chrysantha.
0: Chrysantha, like Mm -hmm. Chrysanthemum? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Chrysantha. Chrysantha, that's a beautiful name. Bless you, Chrysantha.
1: Chrysantha asks, Did Jesus and Mary have sexual desires? Were they able to have sex? And how did their sexuality differ from ours?
0: Oh, I love this question. This could be a doctoral dissertation that I would love to write, uh, but I've already done my doctoral dissertation, and I don't plan on doing another one. But I can give some food for thought. My point there is... There's no way I can go into all the details that would be justified by this really awesome question, but here are some thoughts. Did Jesus and Mary have sexual desires? The Church teaches that Jesus and Mary were in no way less human because they didn't experience sin. They were fully human. They were more human. Sin is always a detraction of our humanity, All that is true, good, and beautiful about our humanity, Jesus and Mary experienced to the full. And sexual desire is part of the original plan of God for humanity, right? Now, where we get tripped up is that we often in our minds equate sexual desire with lustful desire, right? It is lust—it is lustful desire that is incompatible with holiness, And Jesus and Mary were both perfectly holy. It is not sexual desire that is incompatible with holiness. It is lustful desire that is incompatible with holiness. In the beginning, before sin entered the world, man and woman were both naked and felt no shame. And they experienced nakedness without shame because they experienced erotic desire as nothing but the desire to love divinely. Jesus is the new Adam. Mary is the new Eve. Both of them experienced Eros, to use that Greek word, as the expression of agape. Right? The church is very clear here. Pope Benedict XVI says Eros is part of Christ's heart. Right? But his Eros was an Eros that was perfectly integrated with agape. Pope Benedict goes so far as to say that we can't even imagine a more mad Eros Mm. than that which Christ experienced in His desire to be one with His bride through the cross, through the Incarnation and the death and resurrection. That is Eros that drove the, the bridegroom to want to be one with us, right? So Eros that expresses agape, that would be the right way to understand what both Jesus and Mary experienced. We looked briefly at Jesus with an eros that led him to the cross. It was eros. It was holy eros. It was eros that expressed agape, that led Mary to open herself to the marriage proposal from heaven. It is in no way Mary's virginity and Jesus's virginity. Neither is in any way a negation of human sexuality but it is an expression of the ultimate purpose and meaning of human sexuality, which is to reveal agape in this world. Eros is meant to express agape. That's how they experienced it. That's not how we, in the normal course of our experience in this fallen world, experience it. Precisely because we're fallen, right? Eros, in the fall, ran out of agape. And that brings me back to what I was saying in answer to the previous question. The new wine of Cana is the pouring out again of agape into Eros. And the goal here for all of us, the goal of the Christian life is to get totally drunk on this new wine. What did they accuse the apostles of on Pentecost Day when the love of God fell on them? Everybody thought they were drunk. Jesus himself was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, right? So here's the point. Yes, Jesus and Mary experienced sexual desire in the perfectly integrated sense, pre-fallen, not tainted by lust. They experienced an eros that expressed agape, and they are held out to us as the trajectory of our own journey towards the fullness of redemption. Am I? Am, is there anything I'm leaving out here? Wondering?
1: I I love you. Started out kind of answering that third question: How did their sexuality differ from ours? Because you yeah. brought up lust, right. and that was what they did not have. But I just right. wonder if, for our listeners, if you could just spell out a little bit more, like a definition for lust. Yeah. great. That would be great.
0: Good. I'm kind of taking that for granted. Lust is inverted sexual desire. It's it's sexual desire that is not aimed at being a gift to and for the other and the offspring that might result, but rather it's a taking of the other for my own gratification. And that might be a physical gratification, that might be emotional gratification. In any way that we are treating another as an object for my gratification, that's lust, inverted sexual desire. Jesus and Mary never would have experienced that. They always would have experienced their sexual desires as the call to be a gift mm. to another. Oh, and there was a question, were they able to have sex? Right. Physically, certainly they were able to have sex. Jesus was fully a man, fully functional man. Mary is fully a woman, fully functioning woman. They freely chose to express their eros in that entirely vertical dimension, living out the eternal marriage not living out the consummation of that horizontal marriage. Mary was married to Joseph, but they didn't engage in sexual relations, not because sexual relations are bad, but because Mary had already consummated the eternal marriage. Right? The Bible begins with earthly marriage, it ends with heavenly marriage, right? The marriage of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. If, if Mary would have had intercourse with Joseph, it would have been a step backwards instead she's already consummated the union that is to come for everyone and she grabbed joseph's hand and says joseph come with me baby we're going to the marriage of the lamb we're going to the ultimate destiny now so were they capable of sex yes did they engage in sex no because they're living out the very reality to which sex points they're living out the ultimate mystery and on that note I think we should end this episode, because that's the third question, and in the words of the prophet Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that, for now. (laughs) As I said, it could be a doctoral dissertation, but anyway, uh, thank you everyone for tuning in this week. Keep the questions coming, and would you please prayerfully consider becoming a patron of the Theology of the Body Institute? We cannot do the work we are called to do without supporters like you and we're so grateful and we're so grateful yes and may you know it in your bones you are a gift become what you are ask christopher west is brought to you by the theology of the body institute with music by mike mangione christopher and wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you but remind you that they're not licensed counselors if you're going through serious difficulty A list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.